Well, the last time we were in Ephesians 4, we looked at verses 17 through 20 and considered the importance of the Christian's thought life. As a reminder, prior to that, Paul had been speaking about gifts in the church, and in particular, drawing attention to the ministry of the Word. And so it makes perfect sense for him to go from his discussion on the ministry of the Word to our thought life. The Word is sufficient, it is inerrant, but we have to take it and allow it to guide the meditations of our hearts. And an important connection we observed last time, noting just how central the Christian's thoughts are to everything he does, an important connection we noted last time was how our thoughts always precede our actions. We never do anything apart from a thought having been conceived first in our minds. We put one foot after the other after we have first thought about it. And so, to walk as a Christian, to no longer walk as a Gentile, is first and foremost to think like a Christian. The title for this evening's message follows on from that last sermon, How to Think Like a Christian, Part 2. The reason being because 17 through 24 is one single argument hovering around that notion of our thought life. And whereas last time we saw somewhat negatively how not to think, how the Gentiles think and practice their lives in the futility of their minds, around about verse 20, there is a hinge point in the argument, and Paul now exhorts the Christians in Ephesus positively to think like Christians. It's one continuous argument, and we'll see again this evening that ever so important connection between what we think think of and what we do. It was there previously. It is now even more labored by Paul as he connects our minds to our actions. And that is to say very significantly what you do with your minds as a Christian affects very much your walk with the Lord. Oftentimes, Christians can walk with Christ for many, many years and not progress very much at all in their sanctification. It can very easily be true that a Christian has been such for many, many years and has little fruit to show for it. The Lord saved them by His grace many years previous and yet there has been little in the way of sanctification. The reason being because their thoughts are not what they ought to be. They have not pursued a thought life that is God-honoring and gospel-centered. And thus Paul's exhortation and my prayer for us this evening is that we would think like Christians, 
And in so doing, we would all be conformed more to the image of Christ. Now, the argument is very simple, the way in which it is structured. We'll pick up in verse 21, and there Paul talks about their salvation experience. Remember in verse 20, he says, that is not the way you learn Christ. In verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. As Paul says in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him, we might read that verse as if there was some level of doubt in Paul's mind about the Ephesians' conversion to Christianity. That is not how we are to read that verse. The construction, the grammar in the original language betrays Paul's confidence. His confidence that these Christians with whom he had spent time were indeed converted to Christ, were genuinely saved. And remember again just how interesting it is that Paul frames their conversion experience speaks about their salvation in terms of a learning. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. This is past tense, and Paul is looking back to the point at which they entered into their union with Christ. He doesn't use language that we so ordinarily see him use to speak about that moment. Rather, here... He uses language that betrays an experience of learning. And that's entirely appropriate. When anyone comes to saving faith in Christ, there is an apprehension of Jesus, an understanding of Christ to be exactly as the Scriptures present Him to be. Put it another way, somebody can explain to you a hundred times over the gospel and you can understand the, the mere facts of the matter and you can follow the argument, but there is not an apprehension of Christ to be who the Scriptures present Him to be until Christ decides that you would be saved. You understand the facts of the matter and you follow the argument but there is not that learning experience that God himself brings about. Notice there even the use, the intentional use of the passive voice as he says, you have heard and were taught. The inference being God instructed your heart. And so the moment of your salvation was a moment of learning. It was a moment not merely where the heart submitted to Christ, but the mind also. The moment of your salvation, however you construed your salvation to take place, it was for everyone who is indeed a Christian, a moment of instruction. It was however it is that God worked in your life to bring you to a point of confessing Jesus as Lord, there was at that moment an apprehension of Christ that was altogether new. That was new as you understood Him to be Lord of all. You understood His perfect life to be necessary for you. His sin-atoning death to now have value for you. And His triumphant resurrection to validate all that had gone before. 
That is the moment of apprehension, of learning, of instruction that happens when every believer comes to Christ. It is a moment where the heart is compelled to embrace him and where the mind is informed to worship him. The Christian life begins and is evermore a life of learning. And Paul then says this interesting phrase at the end of verse 21, as the truth is in Jesus. Now there is an economy of words there that is out of all proportion with their theological significance. An economy of words. Paul is saying in just a few words something that has such theological significance for our lives as the truth is in Jesus. Notice he doesn't say as Jesus is true. He could say that, and it is a valid statement, Jesus is true, he's not deceitful, he speaks the truth. But subtly different is to say as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is rooted in Christ. He is the truth and every other truth derives from Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He stands over the whole universe. And every truth that you may conceive of finds as its head Jesus Christ. The truth is in Him. And so if your Christian experience, the moment of coming into union with Christ was indeed a moment of apprehending him to be who the scriptures present him to be, it is also a moment where everything else starts to fall into place. If the truth is in Jesus, he stands above all other truths, then to apprehend Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Bible presents Him to be, is also at the same time to inform your understanding of everything else. Now everything else starts to fall into what we might call a biblical, a truly biblical worldview. Whereas before you were prone to see everything according to your own sinful desires, the, your own proclivities towards certain sins, Everything was informed by that lens. The moment that God brought you into union with Christ and you saw Him to be who the Scriptures present Him to be, everything else is now informed by the fact that the truth is in Jesus. So now you look at the world differently. From the moment God saved you, you began to look at the world differently. There is an impulse that God creates in your mind and in your heart that instructs you to think differently. It began the moment that you were saved. You started to think differently. You are not permitted to think in the way that the Gentiles think and you intuitively understand that. It has immediate ethical implications. 
You don't need to attend a seminar or a lecture or to read many volumes of books to know intuitively the moment God saves you, you can't cheat on your tax return anymore. You don't need that instruction. Your mind begins to reason differently. The second God saves you, you don't have to sit in counseling for hours on end to understand, I can no longer be the unapproachable person that I was in the flesh. You understand the ramifications that come from your salvation in Christ as you have perceived that the truth is in Him. You now start to order your understanding of the world around you, not least your relationships, in accordance with His character. As God saved you, you intuitively understood, you immediately started to think differently about your work. You know, I can't be lazy anymore. It doesn't honor the gospel by which I have been saved. I must now honor the Lord with my work. And on and on the list goes. The point is, as Christ saves you, you start to think differently. Paul is looking back to the Ephesians conversion experience. You heard about him. You were taught in him as the truth is in him. The most immediate way in which you start to think differently is that you understand that there must now be a putting off of the old self. This is exactly where Paul goes in his argument, verse 22. As you heard about him and you were taught in him, you understood, verse 22, that there must now be a putting off of your old self. You can't keep doing the things you did before. Your old self, your old practices belong to your former manner of life. They are not befitting of a Christian. Indeed, he says in verse 22, they are corrupt and they are worked out through deceitful desires. So the very first way in which your heart is instructed as God saves you is an understanding, an intuition that you must begin to put off the old Self. Again, as Paul looks back to this historical reality in the life of every Christian in the church there in Ephesus, there is at the same time an implied exhortation that comes to us through this text. You understand that the the process of putting off the old self is not yet complete. It happened. As you apprehended Christ, as your mind was instructed about Christ, you intuitively knew I need to start putting off the old self, but the process is not yet complete. Rather, you began a lifelong process of putting off the old self. Undoubtedly, as you think back, to that time of conversion in your life, you can point to certain sins, certain practices that you dealt with immediately. 
with an urgency. God revealed them to you. He opened your eyes to see what was the sin in your life. And undoubtedly, there are certain things you can recall that you dealt with immediately. That is not to say the process is done. For our whole lives until Christ appears, we will be putting off the old self. And so the exhortation that comes from this text to all of us this evening is that we would keep putting off the old self. How? Beginning with a continual learning of Christ. You see the connection. You have to maintain the logic of Scripture. You learn Christ. You apprehend Christ. And through your apprehension of Him, your feet then set to work to put off the old self. One comes necessarily before the other. If you stop learning Christ, you may try to put off the old self, but you will only ever do it in your own strength. You'll only ever do it for the wrong motives. Any efforts will be short-lived. Indeed, the efforts themselves will become sin unto you. You have to learn Christ continuously. And as you keep pursuing Him, practically you keep putting off your old self. Now both steps in the process are, I think, harder than perhaps we like to think. Learning Christ is harder than we think. We are distracted. We live in an image-based culture. It's unique in the history of Western civilization, for so long, a word-based culture, we now live in a time that is predominantly image-based. Hundreds, if not thousands of images, are projected before our eyes every week. So few of them honor Christ. So many of them Dishonor Christ. And so we are being taught how to think by these images, by what we see. And couple that with the distracted nature of life, always moving from one reality to another, never lingering very long on any one single thought. It is to say that learning Christ today is not what it ought to be. There is... Very rarely a meditative life in the Christian that matches up to the Bible's expectations. The Bible anticipates that we would be those who spend our hours thinking upon Christ. Rarely does the Christian's meditative life match up to the Bible's expectations. It is a discipline that we must take seriously. It takes energy. We must exert energy to study Christ. We study Him predominantly through God's Word. We make our home in God's Word. We meditate upon Christ. With much prayer, we ask God that He would instruct our hearts Concerning our Savior. 
wonderfully, however much you have learnt Christ, however long you have been walking with Him, however much you have learnt of Him, you have not exhausted all there is to know. You will spend eternity learning of Christ. And so there is more to learn and we must pursue our apprehension of Him continuously, not least because it is the first step to putting off the old self. When you learn Christ persistently, then He does shine a spotlight on your life and show you where there are areas of ongoing lingering sin to be dealt with. And yet, I think all too often Christians today don't take the putting off of the old self seriously enough. There is a latent theology in the church that espouses the notion of letting go and letting God. As if the Christian life is a passive life. As if we just enjoy ourselves and meander along and God will just deal with our sin. That is not what the Scriptures teach. The Bible says we are to put off the old self. By God's grace, we are to take hold of our sin and do all that we can to rid ourselves of it. With the help of other saints around us, this is why the local church is so important. We take hold of that which dishonors God and we get rid of it from our lives. Some months ago, I mentioned a pamphlet. Sadly, it's out of print today. I don't know how it ended up in my hands many years ago. For years, I had this pamphlet tucked inside my Bible, and I would regularly turn to it. And even just the title was a helpful reminder of me, to me, of the way in which God expects me to live a life of principled obedience. That is what you're called to live, a life of principled obedience. And one sentence that I had marked up in that booklet when I first read it, which I go back to over and over again, is the reality that the new birth gives you a desire to obey. The new birth gives you an ability to obey. But the basic psychology of obedience has not changed. I'm quoting here from the book. It is so helpful to understand the new birth gives you the desire and the ability to obey, but the basic psychology of obedience hasn't changed. Which is to say, in order to obey, it requires a wholehearted, concertive, active will. You still need to obey. You have the desire and the ability, but you have to obey. It demands a conscious and intentional choice to do one thing and not another. Your feelings have very little part in the matter of obedience. If your obedience to God's word brings about good feelings, praise the Lord. 
If it doesn't, your responsibility has not changed. You obey God's word. You don't neglect this responsibility. And if God is gracious to show you what your sin is, you deal with it. There are few things as dangerous as a sin tolerated. Few things in the Christian's life as dangerous as a sin of which you are aware, but you are tolerating, doing nothing about. The Christian's life is to be one of continuously putting off. It begins with a learning of Christ and it follows with obedience. Now that's only half the story. Paul keeps going from there, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So there again is the centrality of the thought life. When God saved you, he instructed not just your heart, but your mind. There was in that instant a renewing of the spirit of the mind. There was an intuition, an impulse that made sense to us. We were to put off certain things and it was coupled with an understanding that we were also to put on certain things. Again, as Paul brings into view the historical reality of the conversion experience, we understand it is not yet complete. That is, the process of sanctification is not yet complete. We all, by God's grace, have put on new realities since coming to Christ. But there is more to put on. What's interesting here is the verb that Paul uses to put on is not a parallel verb with the putting off of verse 22. You might anticipate that it's the same verb twice, once negatively, once positively. That's not the case. As people suggest that here Paul is drawing on the imagery of baptism removing the outer garment before going down into the water, coming up, putting on a new garment. It doesn't seem to work, not least because the verbs are different. Paul is actually, it would seem, drawing on the coming of age ceremony when he talks about putting on something new. The verb in verse 22 is of simple setting aside, a, a disassociating with. You rid yourself of certain practices as a Christian. The verb, by contrast, in, verb, in verse 24, is a putting on of new clothes. And so quite possibly what Paul has in mind and what he is drawing from and what his readers would have understood is an imagery that they had seen many, many times in the Greco-Roman Empire when a young man came of age, 13, 14, there would be a ceremony, as we see in so many other societies, and he would be given a, a new garment. And he puts on that new garment as representative of him now becoming an adult. 
It is sobering to think that throughout the history of the West, it has always been understood when a person reaches 13, 14, they are now an adult. A young adult, but nevertheless an adult. And it is only very recently that we have sought to do away with that notion, seeking as best we can to extend childhood many, many years, not allowing our young people to grow up. If you're here this evening around about that age, you're an adult. You're a young adult, but you are an adult. And if you had been living in Paul's day, there would have been a ceremony to mark you becoming a young adult, and that would have included you getting new clothes. And they represent, to some degree, now new privileges. But actually, the emphasis in that ceremony was the extra responsibility that you assume now that you put your childhood behind you. There is now an expectation on that young man that he would conduct himself with self-control and exhibit wisdom. He would make wise choices. He would work hard. He would seek to honor the system in which he has grown up. There is a putting on, as it were, of his adulthood. And Paul seemingly draws on that imagery to say, how much more for the one who is a new creation? You see, it is not simply that we have grown up from our sinful ways by no means. If God had left us in our sinful ways, we would have never grown out of them. They would have got worse and worse and worse as sin would have had its effect in our lives. No, it is that we are a new creation, fundamentally made new by the glory of the gospel. How much more should there then be a putting on of new things? A disassociating with that which dishonors Christ and a pursuing of that which honors Him. As we do so, we exhibit more and more our likeness to God Himself. The second half of verse 24 You put on the new self created after the likeness of God. You now look like Him in ways that you did not previously. And your putting on is particularly concerned with righteousness and holiness. Now what's the difference between those two words? Certainly there is a large degree of theological overlap. But if we could differentiate between them to some measure, righteousness most likely pertains to the person's conduct on a horizontal level with those around them. They live upright in the community. Holiness speaks about their conduct on a vertical level. They are now approaching God properly in accordance with his character, just as we were thinking about this morning. And so, as Paul says, righteousness and holiness, he brings into view the entirety of your life. In every respect, there should be a putting on of attributes that adorn the gospel. Again, it is to be a discipline. 
We learn Christ. We study Christ. We seek to imitate Christ. We are, first and foremost, students of Christ. And as we study Christ, God, by His Spirit, will then inform us of where there is to be a putting on. When was the last time in your prayers that you asked God to open your eyes to what is your sin? What is it that you're doing that dishonors Him? And what is it that you're not doing that He expects you to do so as to honor Him? Pray that God would give you eyes to see where there is to be a putting on in your life. Always approach God's Word with an attitude, a disposition of the utmost humility, understanding you have not arrived. The process is not yet complete, nor will it ever be complete until Christ returns. And with that attitude of humility, ask that He would show you in His Word where there is to be a putting on that you have not yet sought. Speak to those around you in the church. Ask what they do see in your life. And ask what they don't see in your life. Listen with humility and respond. I was speaking just the other day with the elders about the notion of faithfulness. What it is to be faithful. I think it's underestimated today not only how valuable faithfulness is in the ministry of the local church, but just how rigorous a life we must lead in order to be found faithful. This is the Christian life. A continual learning of Christ. A continual putting off and a continual putting on. And in this respect, we are to be found faithful. To be faithful means to do a few things very well over and over and over again. To be faithful does not mean you pursue a certain idea, a certain ministry that you're excited about until the novelty wears off and then you stop. That is not what it means to be found faithful. To be found faithful means you do a few things with the utmost excellence. You strive for excellence in all that you do as a way of honoring the Lord and you do those few things with excellence over and over and over and over and over again. And you keep doing them long after the novelty of the fact has worn off. When the novelty has worn off, the responsibility has not shifted one inch. The text will still be there long after the novelty has worn off. The text will still be calling you to learn Christ long after the novelty of study has worn off. The text will still be commending you to search out the Scriptures and know your Savior through rigorous study and through prayer long after the novelty has worn off. 
And the text will still be calling you to put off the old self and to put on the new self, even when it gets hard. As it gets hard, the responsibility still remains. And so we are to be found faithful, learning Christ all of our days, putting off our old self, putting on the new self. This is what it means to think like a Christian. Would you pray with me now to close? Our Father, we give you thanks for these verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're grateful for what they teach us. Not least that relationship between our thoughts and our actions. The Lord Jesus himself instructed us that we are to love you with our minds. And as we love you with our minds, we will love you with our lives. Father, help us to think like Christians. I pray we would not walk in the futility of our minds as unbelievers do. I pray where there are improper thought patterns, by your grace, we would rid our minds of them. Father, above all, help us to learn Christ. We're grateful this evening for the apprehension that you have allowed us to have of him. We have taken him in and found him to be glorious. We have perceived Christ in accordance with with the way in which Scripture presents him. He is not to us a mere man. He is the God-man who died a sin-atoning death on the cross and you have allowed us to perceive that. Allow us now, prompt us to keep studying Christ. And as you instruct our hearts and our minds concerning him, may we also be those that continuously put off the old self. Father, show us where there is sin in our lives. Give us that desire to rid ourselves of it. We thank you for the ability that the new birth gives to us. May we be disciplined to rid ourselves of sinful practices. And may there be a putting on of the new self with new creations. We should put on new practices. Help us to learn Christ. Show us the path of holiness. May we as a church be a mutual and a constant encouragement to one another in this respect. I pray that the process of sanctification would be real in our lives. Forbid that we would be stagnant. 
forbid that we would not advance in our Christ-likeness from one year to the next. But through our submission to your word, our encouragement of one another, and our readiness to act, may we grow in righteousness and holiness. We plead these things through Christ, our Savior. Amen.